They say that a picture is worth a thousand words. Have you heard that phrase before? A picture is worth a thousand words. So I'm going to test that theory just for a second with you. And I'm going to try to hit every generation as I do this. Okay? So here's, a, here's, here's some iconic pictures that I would imagine some of you will be able to place into your minds that are stored in your Dana Bank as I go through. Uh, how about an American sailor kissing a woman at the end of World War II in the middle of a street as ticker tape falls down? How many of you got that one? How about the crash of the Hindenburg? The fiery flame of the crash of the Hindenburg. How about a motorcade in Dallas right before a shooting? Some of you. How about emaciated children during historic drought and famine in African nations? National Geographic. How about an explosion in the sky right after takeoff of the space shuttle? Fifth grade, watched it on TV, watched the things just spread apart. How about airliners at the moment of impact? And then the dust and rubble and dirt in the streets. All iconic pictures, all pictures of time that have pointed us to different things. And now we have nothing less than the duck face selfie. Iconic pictures that grasp and point us to the things of the time. And pictures truly do help us remember and learn and appreciate things. And they, they show us either selfless reminders or they show us, in the case of the selfie, selfish desires. Things we're all capable of and we're all prone to. And Jesus knew this. So he over and over and over again showed his followers many things about life and love and worship. Why? So that we, we collectively in this room, would have something that we can go back and we can look at and we can remember and we can learn and we can know. And so this morning we want to look at one of the most incredible, I think, of these events. So if you have your Bible or your Bible app, turn or scroll down to John chapter 13. John chapter 13. As we think about this subject, check your serve. John chapter 13. Here we go. <clears throat> John records for us, beginning in verse 1, Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. What a great promise. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. And he laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. And he came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands Oh, Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. 
And Peter said to him, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. And when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now, to get us kind of up to speed on the context of John to this point, in chapters 1 through 12, John has been attempting to show, and he has shown very clearly that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, He is God and that He is the Savior of the world, that He's come for that purpose. All of chapters 1 to 12 have been part of that. And He has made what we call the great I Am statements throughout chapters 1 to 12 when He says, I am the bread of life. I am the living water. I am the resurrection and the life. And then in chapter 8, the greatest statement that He could possibly make, I am before Abraham was. What's he doing? He's claiming very clearly divinity. Jesus is saying, I am God. And John is recording that for us through story after story after account after account of exactly who Jesus is. And then, But here in this passage in chapter 13, John turns. Why? Because Jesus turns. right? And he takes, and we're not talking just about facts about Jesus anymore. Now we've come to what we call the comfort section. It's John 13 through 17. It's the comfort section of the book of John. Very similar to the comfort session that we pick up when in Isaiah in chapter 40 through the end of the book, where Isaiah switches from just facts about coming of judgment to comfort ye my people in Isaiah 40 40 verse 1. And Jesus is doing the exact same thing. Why? Because he's going away. And they don't really get it yet. So he turns to comfort for them. But he's also doing something else here. He wants to leave them a lasting impression of the most important thing that they can do in life. Serve. Give. Be his hands and feet. And so he he gives them probably one of the most vivid reminders that anyone can ever get of that fact. And we'll get to it in just a second, but we want to just pick up in verse 1 and let's just start going through and see where we end up. So the scene opens up here with an example in John chapter 13, verse 1, of the deep, deep love of Jesus. The deep, deep love of Jesus. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. John chapter 3 verse 16 says what? For God so loved the world that he did what? Gave. Gave his only begotten son. First day of Advent, Christmas season. We sing all the songs about the baby in the manger, right? And the baby in the manger is important only so far as the baby grew up and became the Christ on the cross. And so we celebrate the deep, deep love of Jesus in the fact that he loved us. How do we know Jesus loved us? Well, number one, he created us. 
He, he created, He gave us breath and life. Genesis chapter 1 and 2 talks about that. And John chapter 1 talks about that nothing was created apart from Jesus. And so he know he loves us. But look at what he says. He's talking, he's, John is talking about a very specific set of people. He's talking about his own who were in the world. He's not just talking about a general cosmos kind of all over world kind of love now. He's talking to a very specific set of people. The ones who would ultimately become the church. His disciples. And he says he loved them to the end so he could not leave them hanging. He had to give them something that they could hold on to. And it was a selfless kind of love because it says he knew his hour had come. All through the Gospels, when you hear that word, Jesus' hour had come, that was the moment when his death was, imp- was just about to happen. That sort of what the theologians call the messianic moment where he's about to die for our sins, where he's about to suffer, where he's about to be bruised, where he's about to be store, scorned, right? Folks, this is the king of the universe loving us unconditionally to the end. So much so that he cannot leave us without comfort in the world. That's an incredible king. That's the best king that's ever lived. There's been no other example of any king. You can't find it in literature. You can't find it in reality. No king has ever loved his people like that other than King Jesus. And so he loves them in spite of knowing what's going to happen. His love never failed. It never gave up. Why? Because this is King Jesus. And he has a deep, deep love because he created, but he also gave the ability to be recreated in him, as we're going to see in a minute. So he's now speaking to the ones who came. He wants to reassure them and prepare them of what's to come when their world will be turned upside down. And I tried to think of a really good way to illustrate what it really means that Jesus is king. And I was reminded of an old video that I saw. I want you to listen to this video, and I want you to, for just... Like three minutes, just allow this video to give you the opportunity to worship Jesus because of his deep, deep love for us. My king is a king of the Jews. He's a king of Israel. He's a king of righteousness. He's a king of the ages. He's a king of heaven. He's a king of glory. He's a king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of theology. He's the only one qualified to be at all sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. He cleans the 
lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captives. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the age. He rewards the diligent. And he purifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's a key to knowledge. He's a wellspring of wisdom. He's a doorway of deliverance. He's a pathway of peace. He's a roadway of righteousness. He's a highway of holiness. He's a gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. I wish I could describe him. For yet he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. Well, you can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your head. You can't outlive him. And you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him. But they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him. And the grave couldn't hold him. Amen. It's a great reminder. Jesus, folks, in the midst of the Advent season, we must always remember <laughs> that baby came to show the deep, deep love of God in ways we could never fathom so that he could be our living Savior. And it's the deep, deep love of Jesus that compels and impels Jesus to the act that we've already read about in John chapter 13. And so we have seen this. And so often we get confronted by these kinds of things. And we just celebrate the goodness of God. And we celebrate the good love of God. But it doesn't cause us to do anything. What Jesus wants us to see more than anything else is that if we love him, it propels us to love others. And so the deep, deep love of Jesus drives him to be uncomfortable and to be selfless in the midst of what's going to become the most brutal thing he could ever endure. And it, is, it, it motivates him to this supreme act of service. And it's a beautiful reminder but as the scene continues, chapter 2 reminds us of an ugly reality. Or verse 2 reminds us of an ugly reality. Let's read, let's read it again. And during supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. Wow. We have this beautiful picture of the deep, deep love of Jesus for his people that wanted to make sure they were not left cold and alone and heartless and disenchanted and all those different things. And in the midst of that, Satan rears his ugly head. It kind of reminds you of the first three chapters of the Bible, right? In Genesis 1 and 2, everything is great. 
God has created this beyond utopian reality where everything is perfect and His peace is perfect and His presence is perfect and we know Him in His perfect presence in a perfect way that we would never comprehend in the fallen world in which we live. And all of this is going great until chapter 3 when Satan comes in and he simply says, Did God really say? And he brings doubt into Adam and Eve's heart and he says, teach, tells them they need to not believe that God is good. And God is loving. And he, it's, he's, he's, his desire is shown to be that he wants to steal love. That is Satan's greatest desire is to steal love. That, that love that we have toward God. That worship, that adoration. He is always desired to steal that love away. But the great reality of Genesis chapter 3 is that in the midst of our sin, God's love never failed. even though Satan tried. And even here at the end of John, the book of John, when Jesus is about to be betrayed by one of his own, folks, let that sink in, one of the ones that followed him for three and a half years is about to betray him. And we can get into why and why wherefores of that, but it's not important. It's the fact that it's about, he's about to betray him and Jesus knows it. And Jesus includes the betrayer even in his incredible act of love. And I think it's safe to say that, this, that doing that goes completely against our human nature, doesn't it? Right? We have a problem when people, when people sin against us. We typically have a problem being willing to continue to love well. We, we usually think of other things to do to betrayers rather than love them. And we have an incredible, mind-blowing affirmation here of Jesus' character. And if I could give us just, a, just a, a quick 21st century example of this that I've seen so often, especially in the church, it would be with how we relate to people who are Muslim. We tend to see them all as terrorists and out to get us. Not as souls who when they die will go to eternal hell and need love and service and Jesus. And so we tend to yell and scream and be mad at them rather than just love them. Rather than just show them the love of Jesus. We go the other way. And the Bible tells us that Jesus, though, went to whom? He went to the tax collectors. And he went to the sinners. And he went to the places that the religious elite would never go. Why? Because they didn't want to be tainted. Even though that's where the people who really needed to hear about Jesus really actually were. And he didn't separate himself from the sinners, but you know what else he didn't do? He didn't really also separate himself from even the religious elites. He tried over and over and over and over again to get at their hearts. These were his bitter enemies throughout the entirety of his three and a half years of of ministry. They were his bitterest enemies, and yet he loved them too. And so now, at the end, he loves even his betrayer with a deep, deep, abiding love. 
And I wonder, how often do we, how often do I, allow Satan to distract us from Jesus' love? One of the best ways we see that is if we slip into some kind of state where we've forgotten Jesus' love and we become depressed. Right? Depression is real. But so is Jesus' love. And when we forget that, we can slip away and our hearts become cold and our minds become distorted and our, everything begins to swirl and we take this downward spiral into depths that we never thought we could go into until we remember the deep, deep love of Jesus. How, long do, how often do we allow Satan to steal our devotion and our desire to live the life Jesus died for us to live? I would submit for most of it, it's daily. Unless we're constantly preaching the gospel to ourselves, unless we're constantly reminding ourselves of his love, we will all fall away from it. Because that's just the way our hearts are in a fallen world. And so we've seen Jesus' deep, deep love, not just for his people, but even for his betrayer. And now we come to the act. The most incredible act of service, bar one. Bar one. But this is a picture of that ultimate act of service that we're about to see. And so knowing full well that his devoted followers and his betrayer are seated at the table with him, Jesus shows his love through a supreme act of service. Let's look at verses 3 through 5. Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Folks, we need to really understand the picture of what's going on here. You've heard this before, probably. Most of you, if I asked you to raise your hands, would say you've heard this passage preached. But it's so easy to just read over it and miss the important parts. Folks, the act that Jesus just did, that we just read about, was done by the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low in a common household of the day. Why is it necessary? Well, because when you walk around in sandals all day on a dirty road full of manure from multiple animals, your feet start to get dirty and stinky. And so they go into this upper room, they go into this house and they're upstairs and they're all laying on the couches, right? They didn't eat dinner like we did. They had like these beanbag things almost, right? Which would be cool. I'd like to eat on a beanbag. They laid around and they laid around. Now, I'm not sure how that was good for digestion, right? To lay down while you were eating, but they did. So they laid down. So imagine it. They're kind of in a semicircle. All their feet are kind of pointed to the center. Now imagine the stink, It had to be smelly. It had to be stinky. And they're all there waiting, as was the custom of the day, for the lowest of the lowest of the lowest of the low to come in with a basin of water and do the dirty, nasty, stinky job of cleaning feet. Now, let me just tell you, I hate feet. Generally, much less stinky feet. I mean, feet are just nasty. They're ugly. They got those long things sticking out the end of them. You know, if you got a, if you got a 
a wacky toenail, it looks even nastier. You know, I mean, it's just one of those things. Feet are just one of those things. They're not pretty things. But add layers of manure and dust to it and it just got even worse. And they're waiting and waiting and waiting because the custom of the day was the master of the house was to send in his lowest servant to clean their feet so that they can eat. And instead of the lowest servant, they get the king of the universe taken off his outer garment. Stepping forward, filling a basin of water, wrapping a towel around his waist. The one that they bow down to, bows down to them and washes their feet. Put it in your mind like one of those iconic pictures. Jesus, the king of the universe, bowed at your feet, washing your feet. How would you feel? Probably very similar to the way Peter felt. What in the world are you doing, Jesus? This is the weirdest thing ever. But he gets down on his hands and his knees and he washes the very feet he created. And he pours the water over them and he takes the rag and he does this. Hits those feet bright, shiny, sparkly clean so that those guys can stop worrying about a hygiene issue and they can just focus on, on dinner. And he, 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 he takes it and he washes them and then he comes to Simon Peter, oh, the apostle of foot and mouth disease. He comes to Simon Peter and he says this. Lord, do you wash my feet? I mean, can you imagine the lack of understanding Peter had to have had right there? That he's got, here's, the, here's the guy that he has confessed is the Lord and Savior of all. He is the rock of the, he is the founder of the church. He is the Savior. He is the Son of God. You have confessed that openly in front of people. And now he's washing your feet and he says, What I am doing, Jesus says. You do not understand now, but afterwards you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus said to him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Right? So for Peter, it's all or nothing. Don't just wash my feet. Wash everything if you're going to wash, if that's what you're telling me. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not every one of you. And so now, the one who knew that God had given all things back into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to the one, back to him, the one who created their feet, dons the attire of a servant... And in an incredible, jaw-dropping, world-turning, upside-down moment, he washes their feet. Even Judas's. Even the betrayers. And this great display of love and sacrificial humility displays the magnitude 
And that's the big word, and it was chosen on purpose, displays the magnitude of the fullness of Jesus' coming that will be ultimately revealed at the cross. And in that moment, the disciples would begin to understand that Jesus was more than they ever imagined he would be. In Luke chapter 22, verse 27, we read this. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. What? Jesus came to serve? Really? Is that can can that possibly can that possibly true be true? Well, Philippians chapter 2 verses 6 through 8 we read this. He who though was in the form of God did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a anybody know what the next word is? servant. Being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. What's happening here, folks? What's happening is this, is that the shadow of the cross is becoming ever darker over the scene. It was faint in chapters 1 through 12, but now in chapter 13, the light behind the, sh- the cross is just shining darker and dar- brighter and brighter, and the shadows becoming darker and darker, and the cross is spreading over the landscape. And it's, 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 it's about seeing what the gospel really is. And here's, folks, here's where Leviticus helps. And I know Leviticus is hard, and I am sure it has been on hard on him to study and to bring it all down into something that lasts only about an hour and 37 minutes? That was supposed to be funny. Leviticus points us to the necessity of a servant sacrificing himself for our sins. It's not about rams and bulls and goats and pigeons. It's about a God who covenanted with his people to say one day ultimately all this stuff right here is going to go away because there's going to be one who's going to come. Just like I promised back in Genesis chapter 3, there's going to be one who's going to come and he's going to provide a once for all sacrifice in the extreme ultimate act of service the world has ever witnessed. And in John chapter 13, it started. The events are set in motion to begin that ultimate sacrifice. And, and what Jesus is doing here by talking about the bathing thing, about just needing the feet done and not the whole body, is a reminder, folks, that the gospel has nothing to do with hygiene. It has everything to do with holiness. Just like all those sacrifices that we've seen in the book of Leviticus. And all those laws and all those rules and all those regulations have absolutely nothing to do with our actual hygiene. Ultimately, they have everything to do with our holiness. See, the gospel has nothing to do with my church attendance. The gospel has nothing to do with my religious affections. My gospel has nothing to do with my religious acts. The gospel has nothing to do with how clean I can make myself on Sunday morning if I wear a three-piece suit that's 
super tailored and cost thousands of dollars, it would matter nothing if my heart is not clean before God. Neither will yours. Why is it so important that Jesus came to be a servant? Because Isaiah told us it was. Throughout the book of Isaiah, there's this servant who keeps appearing. And he appears five times throughout the book of Isaiah in different passages. But the one we know the most is Isaiah 52 and 53. The suffering servant. And there we're told that he is bruised, he is crushed, he is battered for what? Our iniquities, our sins, and our transgressions. Jesus didn't come when he came in a manger to be a king. He came when he came in a manger to be a servant. And we could stop right there. And we could go home and we could celebrate the fact that Jesus died for us. We could celebrate the fact that everything is now have the ability to be restored back because we have a rescuer who has come and has saved us from our sins, but we're not allowed to. Because the text goes on. It doesn't stop there. Because Jesus is not done with the teaching moment yet. Sometimes I wish he was. Sometimes I wish Jesus had stopped the teaching moment right there with Peter because it would be so much easier. But he doesn't. Look at what he says now. Verse 12. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you are right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, and, and, and don't miss the transposition, right? He said they call him teacher and Lord. He reversed it. He said, I am Lord first, teacher second. Have washed your feet. Here it is. You also ought to wash one another's feet. Check your serve. Check your serve. It was, Jesus, really? Did you have to go there? See, deep down in our hearts, we all say that. Deep down in the part we all try to hide, right? I just let it out in public. That deep down in all our hearts, we all say, why? Why can't it just be that we just celebrate your love for us and saving us? Why do you have to go on and now make us go do the same thing? So he says this ultimately, if we were to construct the argument. If Jesus as Lord and teacher showed incredible humility through an act of selfless service, and if a servant should not think that he is below doing something that his master would do, then you and I ought to be willing to live lives of selfless service as well. Wow. Why? Well, Paul said it this way. How are people who don't know Jesus supposed to hear Jesus unless someone comes to them and tells them about him? In the book of Romans. 
You know what occurred to me? That to Jesus, these disciples are the least of these to him. They're his least of these. And what he's doing is, is what, he, what Jesus is ultimately showing us is what it looks like to serve the least of these. And just so that we're all on the same page of what it means to serve the least of these, Matthew chapter 25 gives us that image. If you want to turn there, you can. But Matthew chapter 25, beginning in verse 40, we read this. And the king will answer them, Truly, truly, I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. Who's he talking about? He's talking about a stranger that you welcomed, a a beggar that you gave food and drink to. Someone who had no clothes that you closed. Someone that was sick and you visited. Someone that was in prison and you came to them. That's who he's talking about. And then he goes on and he says, Then I will say to those, Then he will say to those on his left, Depart from me, you cursed into the eternal fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me no food. I was thirsty and you gave me no drink. I was a stranger and you did not welcome me. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. Then they also will answer saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or naked or sick in prison and did not minister to you? Then he will answer them saying, Truly I say to you, as you did not do it to one of the least of these, you did not do it to me. Now, before we get into thinking that somehow Jesus is saying that our acts of service somehow make us holy, we're not, Jesus is not saying that. But what is Jesus saying? Jesus is giving various tangible examples of what it means to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus has a deep, deep love for his people that did not die when sin came into the world. Right? Remember the scene in the garden after sin came and Adam and Eve have hidden from God and they got their little, their little leaves and made mud flaps for themselves? God loved them enough not to leave them in that state. I had a seminary professor who said that the acts of applying leaves to themselves was the very first act of human religion. And God said, no, guys, it's not enough. Here's some skins. I made the sacrifice for you. Hmm. Sounds like Jesus. I made the sacrifice for you. You couldn't make it for yourselves. So I made it for you. And I'm picturing it right now by getting on my hands and knees and washing your dirty, nasty feet so that you can see a picture of the cross that just in a couple days, in a day, is going to be raised up on a hill. And I'm going to be hung on that cross for you. And I don't want you to only celebrate the fact that you have the salvation that my death on the cross offered. I want you to go tell people about it. And one of the ways I want you to go tell people about it is by serving them. How do we serve? How long do I have? Oh, not long. 
How do we serve? In two ways. Fellowship and mission. Fellowship and mission. Fellowship is this. It's loving other Christians. As we fulfill the biblical call to, among other things, love one another, John 13, 34. Carry each other's burdens, Galatians 6, 1 through 3. Meet the needs of brothers and sisters, Acts 2, 45. And share in suffering, 2 Timothy 2, verse 3. How do we do that here? Life groups, right? That's the heartbeat behind life groups is living life together with other people in a small group where you can get to know them and you can share their burdens and you can do things like that. I've experienced that. I have, I have lived in a life group where it was like everybody's need was everybody's need. And it was an incredible thing to witness the gospel lived out in that way. And it can be lived out here the very same way in a life group as we serve one another. But then it can be served in, the, in mission. One of, the, one of the words that we hear a lot around here is what? Missional. Right? Thinking like a missionary. Right here. Where we've been planted. Not, not wondering when the next plane ticket is coming so we can go overseas and do it. Not wondering when the next short-term mission is going to be or the next long-term mission is going to be. Just simply living it right here, right now, as we what? We show mercy and justice to people. As we spread the good news of the gospel. Right? I am not an extrovert by nature. It is not easy for me to stand in front of people. I am very, not very introverted, but I tend towards introverted. And so when I have opportunities to share the gospel, it, it, it causes me to have a little bit of fear. But we shouldn't let fear stop us. Should we? We should be willing to get over our fear. And yeah, we might use fumbling words, and yeah, we might use, you know, what we think are bad examples, but God can use anything that comes out of our mouths to draw people to Himself for His glory. We spread the good news and we bring truth into a culture that denies truth. It's just some of the ways. There's multitudes of other ways. I was reading on a website and I found this. In the end, right, us showing love is sacrificially leveraging our time, money, and resources to invest in that which is eternal as patterned in the gospel of Jesus Christ. You want to know where I got that from? Thecrosslife.org. It's in the core values of this church. If we're attenders or members of Cross Life Church, we signed up for that. You know what we ultimately signed up for, though? 
We can put big words to it. We can make it sound fancy. We can do all these things. But you know what we ultimately signed up for? When we became Christians more than anything else. If you're a Christian in this room this morning. If you know for sure that you are a Christ follower. Here's what you signed up for. To be his hands and feet. To share his truth. To share his love. To be the gospel lived out. To people who desperately need the gospel lived out to them. Have you ever wondered if on the eve of his crucifixion Jesus was afraid? I think the story of the Garden of Gethsemane where Jesus sweat drops of blood gives us a clear picture that he was. What did he do? What did he do? He went to pray. And he prayed to the Father. And he asked him, in all honesty, God, if there's any other way, can we, can we do it that way? But when God said no, what did Jesus do? He put aside his fear. He put aside his worry. He put aside his anxiety. And he served. What if we did the same thing? What if Josh Grizzle was willing to do the same thing? What if, insert your name, we're willing to do the same thing. What difference would it make in the tri-cities of Tennessee and Virginia for the glory of God? Check your serve. It's hard to think about. It's hard. It, it, it makes us feel guilty. Don't feel guilty past is the past. Decide today to move forward. Decide today to leverage your time, money, and resources to invest in that which is eternal. And you know what? Let's do it together. Because it's more fun with people. Check your serve. Jesus served so that we can serve. Not for our own glory, for His. So what difference does this make? What difference ought this passage of Scripture make? And I can't tell you what it is in your own life, but I'm just going to give you some realms of life that would be good as the worship team comes and starts to play and we, start, we sing the final song. Some, some realms of life that would be good to think about how this text of scripture could make a difference what about in our homes what about in our marriages what about in our work what about in our church and our other relationships in the church what about in our communities with our neighbors what about in our nation 
we seem to have forgotten even in the midst of politics that we should be servants to one another. So what do we do? I don't know. But God has something specific He wants to do with every text of Scripture we ever study. And He has something specific He wants to do in your heart and your mind today because of the text that we have studied. Will you let Him do it? Will you give Him the opportunity to do it? Thank you.